0: with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 1, and um, Ray, you can cut down that gain just a little bit on my microphone. That's pretty powerful. Good morning! It's powerful. Yes, Yes. thank you. Wake you up this morning. Turn with me to Mark chapter 1, if you would, and we're going to continue as we look at our series, uh, Rediscovering Jesus and the Gospel of Mark. Do be praying for our um, middle school and some of our high school students who are off at uh, the Majnik retreat today, and they're coming back this afternoon, just be praying for Sarah and Kathy McKenzie as they're bringing them back today. I know they've had a great weekend out. Uh, fellowshipping together and being encouraged in hearing God's Word. I know Tess, and I believe somebody else went and served them this weekend. Yeah, they did the work crew, so I know it was a great weekend. I can't wait to get a report back from them. Well, let's turn to Mark chapter 1, if you would. And before we look at His Word, let me pray for us. Father, we thank You for this day. We do pray that You'd open the eyes of our heart to hear uh, the good news about Jesus, uh, that He is our King and He is our Savior. Lord, we love you and we honor you. Thank you that your word is alive, it's living. And, uh, Lord, would you use it to transform us today. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Mark chapter 1, 14 through 20. And let's read and listen to God's word together this morning. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, "Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men." And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going a little farther, they, he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, who were in the boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the in the boat with hired servants. And followed, followed him. I love to read, and you know, if you notice in novels and in stories, have you ever paid attention to the very opening lines of a story, or the opening lines of a novel? I want to just do a little test on you. I think I'm all about giving you guys tests. I want to give you a couple of opening lines from novels, or stories. Some of these are children's stories, and I want to see if you can, you, can, you can figure out what the book is or the novel is. All right, you ready? So put your thinking caps on. Here's the first one, and I think this is a dead giveaway, but maybe not. First line in this book is, In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. Not a nasty, dirty, wet hole filled with ends of worms and oozy smells, nor a dry, sandy hole with nothing in to sit down or eat. It was a hobbit hole, and that means comfort. Anybody know? The hobbit. All right, okay. It's a dead giveaway. All right, here's another one. This one might be a little harder. Call me Ishmael man we have some smart people here that's pretty good all right here's a good one in an old house in paris that was covered with vines lived 12 little girls in two straight lines all right that was an easy one. Oh man we read that book to our kids all the time i still love madeline and then last but not least mr and mrs dursley of number four privet drive were proud to say that they were perfectly normal thank you very much who said it harry potter Oh, that's pretty good, and I you know it's, I like this last part. Just let me finish it. They were stra- They were they were the last people you'd expect to be involved in anything strange or mysterious because they just didn't hold with such nonsense. Anyway, yes, you got it, Harry Potter. Very good. Well, we hear for the first time this morning the voice of Jesus here in the Gospel of Mark, and what he he says. You know, first words are very important. J.K. Rowling, she knew what she was doing when she wrote that, those first words to the book Harry Potter. Uh, the hobbit, Tolkien, knew what he was doing when he talked about explaining how comfortable hobbits like to be. And then you see the rest of that story about how uh, Gandalf and really the other others are making uh, his life more and more uncomfortable and getting him out of his comfort zone, if you will. So first words really are important. And so this morning in the Gospel of Mark, we hear the first words of Jesus. And what was Jesus's opening line this morning. His opening first words in Mark were, repent and believe the good news, the gospel of the kingdom, and follow me. And so almost the first words out of Jesus's mouth are this invitation to follow him. Now to Mark's readers, to those who were around him when he was writing to, uh, these first words of this gospel would have been a very unique first words, if you will, follow me. Now, why would, it been, why would it have been unique to Mark's readers? Why would it been, have been unique to the folks around that time, follow me? Well, back then, in the Jewish tradition, pupils chose rabbis. It wasn't the other way around. If you were a young Jewish boy and you wanted to be trained under a rabbi, you wanted to be trained under a spiritual father, have a mentor, if you will, Mentors didn't pursue their mentees, if you will. Is that a a word, mentees? They didn't do that. Pupils would have to pursue the particular rabbi that they wanted to be trained or study under. Rabbis didn't choose pupils. So if you wanted to sit under the teaching, you would have to go and, and seek them out. But Jesus here, his first words are showing us that he is seeking his disciples out. When he goes to them and gives them this invitation, his first words, follow me. You can't have a relationship with Jesus unless he calls you, unless Jesus calls you. So Jesus comes to these men and and their lives are totally changed, right, as Jesus calls them out. And not only were their lives individually changed, but really the history of the world was changed with those two words when Jesus gave them the invitation to follow me. In fact, his words were so powerful that they changed all of history. They were a powerful, powerful thing. So what do we learn about Jesus's first words this morning? I want to show you just three things about his call, which is inexplicably powerful. Three things we'll see this morning with the call of Jesus. The first one is this, is that Jesus's call is distinctive. It's distinctive. It's different. It's distinctive. And the second thing we'll see is that his call is dangerous. Jesus's call is indeed dangerous and then the third thing that we'll see this morning is his call is progressive it's a process if you will so how is Jesus's call distinctive now it's different because of these two words that he gives us when he says follow me I'll show you the gospel of the kingdom this word gospel we probably know it as good news and he mentions this word gospel twice and then the word kingdom once He says, repent and believe the good news, the gospel of God. Now that word gospel in the the Greek language is a a compound word, which comes from two words, angelos, which is a word for announcing news, and then you, which means joyful. So it means literally the news that brings joy. Now to people back then, when they heard this word gospel, it was something very different than what we think when we hear the word gospel, right? We've We are in the South, we are in the church. When you hear the word gospel, what do you think of? You automatically think of the Bible, you think about Jesus, you think about God. But to them, when they heard this word gospel, it was a very different cultural term to them. When they understood the word gospel, they thought about a history making or life altering or life shaping event or news that happened. Let me give you an example, for instance. Back then, Right around the time of Jesus and Mark when he wrote this gospel, they found a Roman inscription. uh, And this is what this Roman, not Christian, not Jewish, but pagan Roman inscription, here's what it said. Get this. It said, the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. And then it goes on. If you read this inscription, it begins to tell you the story or the history of this birth and coronation of Caesar Augustus as the king of the Roman Empire. So do you understand then that when they heard that term back then, when they heard the term gospel, it meant some life-changing news that was happening. It it didn't really have a a religious or cultural relevance uh, like it does to us. So it was this history-shaping event that changed everything. You know, often back then, two kingdoms would go to war, right? The Romans and the Greeks, for instance, they would go to war. And whomever that had the victory... Somebody had to win, right? And whenever these two kingdoms were going to war and one of the kingdoms won, they would send, and literally the term was evangelist. This is interesting. Again, when we hear the word evangelist, what do you think of? Who do you think of? Billy Graham. Yes, I knew you were going to say that. And I knew Billy Graham's grandson. That's my claim to fame, is that I knew Billy. I had lunch with Billy Graham's grandson in seminary. So there you go. I'm famous. Um, I didn't wash the chopsticks that I used. It was great. No. Uh, Anyway, But when we think of the term evangelist, right, we think of of Billy Graham. We think of of it in a Christian cultural context. But back then when these two kingdoms were going to war and the war was won, they would send evangelists from the front, dispatches from the front, and they would go and they would share with their kingdom uh, the good news that, hey, listen, the warriors who have been fighting for you have won the battle and we are no longer under slavery from the bad king, if you will. And they would bring this good news from the battlefront. They were evangelists, if you will. So the gospel is an announcement. If we put it in that context, the gospel is this announcement that something has happened in history, something that has been done for you that has changed your status forever. Something that has been done for you that has changed your status forever. Now think about this. Think about other religions. Do other religions have gospel or do other religions have advice i would argue that all other religions don't give you gospel life-changing news they give you advice if you will the essence of other religions other than christianity the essence to other religions is they give you advice but the essence of christianity is not advice is it the essence of christianity is what gospel right it's good news other religions say this, an, an, an advice-based understanding or an advice-based religion would say, this is what you have to do, right, advice, in order for you to somehow connect with God. This is what you have to do. This is the way you have to live in order to earn your way to God. That's what other religions would say. But what does the gospel of Jesus tell us? This has what's been done for you in history, right? That's what the gospel says. This is what's been done for you in history. Something has been done for you that has changed your status with God forever. This is the life that Jesus has lived for you that you might be saved. So do you see that Christianity is utterly different than other religions? Because Christianity is this call of grace. It's this gospel. It's this good news that you have been forgiven. You have been accepted. You are loved by God, Where religion says you should live this way, you should love this way, you should carry yourself in this way. They give you an, a, advice. They give you some example. Have you ever gone and asked for, for advice? I know you have. We do that. We, we want to seek advice. We're trying to make decisions. And so we go and, and we talk with friends and they give you advice. And maybe it's somebody that you really respect and, or maybe you just read a book and, and you get advice as you're reading about this hero or this person. And they give you an example of some inspiring hero And then they give you some advice. And you feel inspired for sure, right? When you see this great moral uh, success and great moral figure who's done great things, you feel inspired for sure, but you still feel empty about that advice that they've given you. Or maybe another way that we can change this is say that you are this other country. We talked about two kingdoms who'd gone to war, right? And you are a subject of this kingdom. You are subject to that invading king who has invaded your country and you're in slavery and in bondage for years. And, and then all of a sudden, your fellow countrymen, they, they find enough strength to rise up and they fight the king and his forces that have kept you in bondage. And all of a sudden, the, uh, the victory is won. The heralds come back from the battlefield and the messengers are saying that they are bringing the gospel, the good news, that the bad king has been defeated, that the soldiers have won the victory for you. You are no longer a slave. How would you feel? Right? You'd, you'd be utterly relieved. The good news that comes to you that you're no longer under slavery is far better than just advice that's given to you. When you've learned that you have this weight and burden of slavery taken off of you, something's been done for you that you are no longer a slave anymore, you would be rejoiced. Where advice, on the other hand, it doesn't invoke those feelings of celebration and victory, do they? No, in many ways, advice... Often, I don't know about you, but often when I get advice, it just weighs me down. It makes me think I've got one more thing I've got to do. Advice is not the gospel. You need to understand that. In your Christian life, folks, advice is not the gospel. You never depart from the gospel. It, it stays the A to the Z of the Christian life, if you will. You see, the gospel is not that God seeks you out that God loves you, that God frees you from slavery, not on the basis of what you've done, not on the basis of what you haven't done, but the gospel is that Jesus has sought you out, he's called you, and he has delivered you based on what he has done in history, not what you're going to do with your own history. That's the gospel. So we see that the gospel is distinctive, isn't it? Very different than other religions. Very different than advice or other uh, systems of thought. So not only is it distinctive that something has been done for you, if you want to remember anything about that one point, the gospel is something's been done for you, okay? Understand that. It's distinctive. Second thing is this, that the gospel is not only distinctive, but the call of the gospel, the call of Jesus is dangerous. The call of Jesus is dangerous. Now, first of all, Jesus goes to Simon, who we know as Peter. He goes to his brother Andrew, right? And he gives them this invitation to come and follow me. And at once, what do Simon and his brother Andrew do? They drop their nets, right? And they go and they follow Jesus. Then they go to James and John and he says, follow me. And what do they leave behind? They literally leave their father behind with his hired servants in the boat. Now, if you realize the Gospels, if you read through the Gospels, you'll realize that Jesus... Uh, as he goes to these folks and he calls them and he tells them to radically leave behind what they're doing to follow him you see that as you read through the gospels did the disciples go back to fishing they did they did did the disciples go back to visit their families yes they did but what Jesus is saying here what he was asking these four to do is radical what he was asking them to do is utterly radical and here's here's why now today uh, for us in our culture today right uh Saying goodbye to our parents isn't necessarily a huge thing. I mean, I know we're close to our families, right? We love our families, but, you know, you're ready. Hey, if you're in college, were you ready to go to college? Yes, some of you. Parents, were you ready to send your kids to college? You're like, yes, absolutely. Yeah, in our culture today, it's not as big of a deal saying goodbye to your family, right? But in traditional cultures back then, your identity was completely wrapped up in your family. Your identity came completely from your father or your mother or your grandparents. So it would have been a huge, huge, huge deal for you to leave your family. But when Jesus says, okay, well, maybe that's not a big deal for us to think about leaving our family today. What about this? Say Jesus comes to you and says, I don't want to have priority over your parents, but I do want to have priority over your career. I do want to have priority over your girlfriend." Or your boyfriend, oh, no, Jesus, you can't touch that. Or I do want to have priority over your stuff. No, Jesus, not my Mac or not my iPad. <laughs> no, or my iPhone. I tried to do this with my students. I was a youth pastor, and I tried to, to initiate a week-long uh, smartphone fast for my students. Not a single one signed up for it. Imagine that. I didn't even sign up for it. <laughs> That's a tough thing to do. But when Jesus says, okay, it's, it's not hard to maybe leave your family, but when he says, saying goodbye to your career or your stuff taking your stuff is not to take priority over me jesus says that's drastic right so when jesus says follow me jesus the invitation to follow me jesus is really saying knowing me and loving me and resembling me and serving me should become the ultimate passion in your life and everything else must become second now that sounds drastic doesn't it? steven that's too drastic I can't, can't I follow Jesus somewhere in the middle of the road? Doesn't Jesus say that moderation in all things? Didn't Jesus say that? No, he didn't say that. Jesus doesn't say moderation in all things. No, if you go to Luke's gospel, and, it, and if you look, just do this. Go home, go to Bible Gateway or a computer programmer. Just take your Bibles. Look through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The instances where Jesus says, follow me, or uses the term follow, see what He says, Is his answer a moderate answer? No, it's actually a very extreme answer. I'll just give you an example. In Luke, Jesus is teaching the great crowds. And listen to what he says when he gives them the invitation to follow. He says, Great crowds had accompanied Jesus. Jesus turned around and he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, does not hate his own wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, he doesn't even hate his own life. He cannot be my disciple, Jesus says. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple, Jesus says. What well, does that sound like middle of the road? No. It doesn't sound like middle of the road. It's not moderate. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me, and, and he's not saying I need a, f- a few good men who will come and follow me, a few good men who've got enough stuff who are crazy enough to become uh, disciples and follow in this process of discipleship. No, Jesus is saying if anyone would choose or come to follow me, He must hate his father, mother, wife, children, brother, sister, even his own life. You cannot be my disciple. Now, is Jesus saying, oh, wow, I can hate my parents? Is that what he's saying? I can hate my mom and dad? Doesn't he tell us in other places in Scripture to love? He does. Even to love your enemies, actually, he says. You see, Jesus is saying this, and this is key. Sometimes it's helpful to understand this. When you see that Jesus says you need to hate these things, Jesus is saying discipleship does not hate actively. As in, you hate your parents and then love me, Jesus is saying. Jesus doesn't say to hate actively. He's saying and calling us to hate comparatively. See the difference? He's not saying hate actively. He's saying hate comparatively. He is saying that I want you to follow me so fully, so intensely, so enduringly that all other attachments in your life look like hate by comparison. That's what Jesus is saying. But we often say, okay, Jesus, well, okay, I'll obey you, Jesus, if, you heard this before, you maybe thought this, Jesus, I'll follow you if, if my job and my career go the way that I like it, Jesus. Or, okay, Jesus, I'll follow you if my children don't grow up crazy and rebellious. Okay, Jesus, I'll follow you if, and then you fill in the blank, whatever, whatever it is that you like or that you want. You see, the thing that, whatever the thing is that comes on the other side of that if, that's your real master. The thing that comes on the other side of that if, that's your real functional God. But we're seeing that Mark is telling us that the real Jesus here refuses to be made a means to an end. The real Jesus here in the Gospel of Mark refuses to be made into a means to an end. Jesus will not be used. He will not be used. If he calls you to follow him, he must be the goal. Tim Keller put it like this. He says, that sounds like fanaticism. That's crazy. That sounds like fanaticism. But not if you understand the difference between religion and the gospel, he says. He says, religion is advice on how you must live to earn your way to God. Your job is to follow that advice to the best of your ability, Keller says. If you follow it but don't get carried away, then you have moderation. But if you feel like you're following it faithfully and completely, you'll believe that you have a connection with God because of your right living and your right belief. And then you'll feel superior to people who have wrong living and wrong belief. Then he says that's a slippery slope because if you feel superior to them because of your right living and their wrong living, then what do you do? You stay away from them. You ever caught yourself doing that before? That makes it easier, he says, to exclude them than to hate them and then ultimately carry it to its logical conclusion to oppress them. And he says that there are some Christians like that, not because they have gone too far and been too committed to Jesus, Keller says, but he says, because they haven't gone far enough, he says. They aren't as fanatically humble or, insensi- or sensitive as, or fanatically, un- uh, uh, fanatically understanding and generous as Jesus was, he says. Why not? Because they're still treating Christianity as advice instead of good news. You see, Jesus is saying, don't come to me because I'm relevant. Don't come to me because I am going to make you into a better person or a better Christian. Do not come to me because I'm going to make you happy. And Jesus would say, oh, I am the most relevant. I am the one who is most fulfilling. I am the most fulfilling thing in the universe, he says. I am the most bettering thing in the universe. But I won't be these things if you just simply Come to me for these things. You understand the difference? You see, if if you come to me, Jesus says, to make you better, I can't make you better. Jesus says, if you come to me to make for me to make you happy, I cannot make you happy. If you come to me to make you more moral and more religious, I I won't make you more moral and religious. You see, the gospel isn't advice, folks. Wellspring, hear this. The gospel is not advice, and it never will be advice. Ever no matter how much you try to pigeonhole it and make it advice, it will never be that. Jesus is not the supreme advice giver. He is the supreme life giver. He is not the supreme advice giver. The gospel isn't advice. It is good news that you cannot earn your way to God. You utterly cannot because Jesus has done that for you. And the only way that you can make that yours is through sheer grace you trusting what he has done for you god wants to gift it to you grace is a gift it's god's favor that you will never ever receive what you deserve but you receive everything that he has done for you and you receive it as a gift and you cling to it you don't cling to advice do you he gave me some great advice you know i'm going to i'm going to write that in bronze and look at that advice every day you ever you don't do that You don't bronze advice and then try to just memorize it and you sing around the advice song and you worship advice. You don't do that, do you? It's crazy. Instead, you you live your life following him because he is the passionate goal of your life. Following him is a delight. It's not duty, discipleship, growth in the Christian life. It's a delight. It's not duty, folks. It's not advice. It's the gospel. But loving and following Jesus is always dangerous always dangerous. Why? Because the attachments, the things that you long for, the things that you cling to, the things that you think please you and you hold on to, the things you take and live pleasure for those things begin to grow dim. I love that hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. I love the line, the things of this earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace, right? We cling to those things, cling to him. So we see that his call is distinctive, right? It's not not advice. His call is dangerous. And now we see thirdly that his call is progressive. It's a process. His call is progressive. It's a process. Growth in the Lord and growth in the Christian life, it is a process. Look at verse 17. Jesus said to them, Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Now, before we go further in this verse, I need to tweak your understanding of, of what Jesus means about two things in this verse. The first thing is this phrase, make you become. And the second thing is fishers of men. When Jesus says, I will make you become, it's actually a little bit more nuanced, if you will, in, in the original language, the Greek. I don't know why the, the English translations miss this. It's not that they're wrong, but th- you do have some latitude in the way you translate scriptures. And so it's, it's a little differently understood and if you read it in the original it sounds like this you can really translate it like follow me and i will make you fashion you to become fishers of men." It's if you're a grammar nut it's an infinitive you know put a two in front to become sorry i'm not really a grammar nut but i know that enough so if you're a grammar nut you need to correct me you can i know right thank you (laughs) So, follow me and I shall make you, fashion you to become fishers of men. You see, the idea of following Jesus here is a journey. It's a process. It's a process. Jesus isn't stationary. Jesus isn't saying, come learn of me and I'm going to give you the workbooks and I'm going to give you all the material and then you go home and self-study on how to become a disciple. He doesn't do that, does he? He invites you. Come and follow me. I'm on a journey. And so, first of all, we see that this is a process with this word follow. Follow. Then, Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to make you perfect followers if you would just follow me, then zappo presto, you're all of a sudden perfect followers of Jesus. No, it's right here in the Greek. Jesus says, I will put you in a process where you will become followers of me and become fishers of men. Now, that's the process. What's the journey? What's the mission? What's Jesus' mission that's Progressive. Because Jesus does progressively develop us, doesn't he? But what's the goal? What's the mission? The mission is to become fishers of men. And this, you know, I've never really quite understood this until I began to study for this. This is fascinating. If you look at the imagery and the metaphor, the metaphors that are used in the Bible, the phrase fishing or fishermen, which I like to fish, so I thought maybe there's lots of places in the Bible that mention fishing, but actually there aren't at all. In fact, the the terms fishing or fishermen that come up even before at least Jesus said this. If you go to the Old Testament, whenever the idea of of fishing or fishermen is mentioned, and especially Jeremiah talks about this, it had this ominous ring to it. You see, God's fishing in the Old Testament took place in the context of judgment, right? Now, what do you have to have in order to go fishing? You have to have a fishing pole and you have to have water, right? Here's another interesting thing. The Old Testament imagery for water, for oceans or a lake or a sea, the Old Testament imagery for water, this Hebrew imagery of water is a place of chaos, a place of death, a place of darkness and coldness. It represents the kingdom of the world, if you will. It represents the kingdom of self-centeredness, if you will. We kind of saw that a little bit last week in, in, in Genesis. This kingdom of me, lost in myself. So you put fishing and water together, it's an ominous ring to it. It's not positive. It's really about this kingdom of self, this kingdom of judgment. And that's why God uses this term fishing in Jeremiah where he talks about that they were to rescue men from judgment. So it begins to give you this picture. Fishers of men is that there's a journey and Jesus is making it clear to his disciples, they would have gotten this, that the journey that he is leading them on, their new mission would be to rescue people from the judgment of God. That's the mission. And from the kingdom of themselves. But to become a fisher of man, there had to be a journey, right? When Jesus came to the disciples and he said, follow me, they had no idea where Jesus was going, did they? They thought Jesus was going to be going from strength to strength, from victory to victory. He's our new general, our new spiritual mentor. He really gets it. We're going to follow him and it's going to be awesome, right? What happens a few months later? They're following Jesus and what? The wheels fall off. They abandon Jesus, they, they betray Jesus, they fight, they fuss, the wheels fell off. And that was the way that Jesus was going to be turning them into fishers of men. That was Jesus' way of turning them into fishers of men. Think about it like this. Let me put another spin on this. Say you were to ask a seven year old you, you yourself have gotten recently married, you're in love with your spouse. And you have a seven-year-old niece or nephew and you're visiting with your niece or nephew. You're, you're freshly married. You know, you got that six-month honeymoon buzz. You know what I'm talking about? You're just like, oh, I love you, honey. I love you. And you sit down with your niece or nephew and say, I want you to write an essay for me on what it's like to fall in love and be married. Okay, so they do that. And in seven-year-old fashion, they write the essay. They come back to you and they give you that essay and you read it and go, great effort. But man, you missed it. <laughs> Not even close, Right? Not even close. It's not even reality of what it's like to fall in love and be married. No seven year old could imagine what it would like to fall in love and be married. Here's this understanding of the process of becoming fishers of men. You are at least that far away when you start on this journey with Jesus. You are at least that far away, if not further. You have no idea how long it's going to take you. It's no idea how long it's going to take for Him to transform you and make you into a fisher of man, how far you have to go. What you're going through, you have to go through in order for you to be healed of your self-centeredness, healed of your self-absorption so that you can indeed become a fisher of men where you can indeed begin to draw people out of darkness, out of the kingdom of self and into the light. The disciples had no idea, right? They had no clue that it was going to be that hard. Jesus knew it was going to be harder than they had ever imagined, didn't he? Get this. Jesus still knows that it's going to be harder than you've ever imagined following him. It's going to be hard. He knows that. He created you. He's made you. He knows this journey with him is going to be hard, but he's with you. I have to steal. I stole this from John Piper. I can't take credit from this. But, this is, but I did make the PowerPoint illustration here. So Here we go. This is high tech, by the way. Wish after the installation service for me, there would be an installation service for PowerPoint. Wouldn't that be great? Okay, here we go. Jesus says, follow me, right? Here's how we break this down. First of all, follow emphasis on me. Follow me, Jesus says. Follow me, he says. And then he says, follow me. Follow me. There's a distinction, right? Follow me is the first thing you hear in this invitation the call of Jesus follow me and then the second thing and we often as believers confuse this we want to always stick with this oh wait no I'm sorry we want to always stick with this follow follow and we forget the me it's all about the path I got to get this path I got to get advice I got to get this path figured out no it always comes back to follow me do you understand that? You get me first, Jesus says. You don't get the path. You get me first. You get him. You get Jesus. You get the person, Jesus, always before you get the path. You get the king, Jesus, first. Where he's taking you comes second. Path, second. Mission, second. Person of Jesus, first. Path of Jesus, second. Don't switch those things around. Oh, path of Jesus, and then I'll get to the person, You'll never get to Jesus, ever. Path, person first. Person of Jesus always comes before the path of Jesus. Beloved, I hope you understand that. You get him. The invitation to follow me, you get Jesus. Path comes second. You get the person. And you never leave that person's side, ever. You never outgrow your need to stick with that person, Jesus. Jesus. You'll never know where the path is unless you follow him. And following Jesus means that there is a sweetness, oh beloved, that there is a sweetness in life to following Jesus. But there is indeed also a suffering, isn't there? Mark's made it clear that following Jesus entails a risk of faith. It is There's a huge risk to following Jesus. You know, we don't like to think of faith as something risky, do we? You know, when we think of the term risky, faith and church and Christianity are kind of the last things on our mind, right? Are you going to church today? Oh, that's a risky place. Don't go to church. That's dangerous. We don't think that. We think, I'm going to go rock climbing. Oh, that's risky. (laughs) I'm going to go whitewater rafting in Class 5 Rapids. That's risky. Letting your 15-year-old drive. Risky. (laughs) Right? Sorry, students. I just had to throw that in. But following Jesus, we don't think of faith as as a risky thing, right? But following Jesus is far riskier than rock climbing or driving with a 15-year-old or or whitewater rafting. Why is that? Because you have to die, folks. The invitation to follow Jesus means you have to die. It means that in reality, it is far harder to die to your self-absorption. It's far harder to to die to your self-centeredness, to be curved in on yourself. It's far harder to die of your desire to control and manage your life, isn't it? It's almost easier to jump off a cliff, and I'm not saying do that, but it, it ends But following Jesus. It's far harder. It's far harder to die to yourself. Faith feels like death. People don't equate faith, but Jack Miller said that. Faith feels like death. It feels like death to trust Jesus with your children. It feels like death to trust your marriage to Jesus when it's not going like you want it to. It feels like death to trust your career to Jesus. It feels like death. Faith feels like death. And when Jesus asked James and John to leave their father, Jesus never asks us to go with him where he hasn't first gone before. So you need to hear this. How do you do this? This is impossible. It is impossible if it weren't for what Jesus has done for you in history. Because when Jesus asked James and John to leave their father and their father behind in the boat to follow him, he had already left his father's throne. You understand that? When Jesus went to the cross, he left his father ultimately. When he went to the cross, he experienced infinite loss on the cross. Because he experienced hell for you. So that you don't have to experience. So, is Jesus calling you this morning? Is Jesus calling you? And if he's calling you, what is he calling you to? Maybe it's to know him for the first time. Maybe you have lived your life based on advice, and you've never, ever known about the me of Jesus. Come to him. Good news is you don't have to be fit and have it all together. The only fitness that God requires of, of you is that you feel your need of him. Maybe Jesus is calling you maybe he's calling you to forsake something that you're clinging to so tightly and you're finding peace and you're finding life in it, but really, there is no peace or life. Maybe he's calling you to a greater commitment of resources that you want to give your resources away, or he's con- calling you maybe. You and your family to do something and go somewhere where you have no idea where He's going to lead you, but there's a stirring in your heart and in your family's heart, and you know something's going on. Maybe He's calling you to risk forgiving and moving towards someone that's hurt you. What's He calling you to? Don't ignore His voice. Don't ignore His voice. And know that He has already gone before you. He has gone before you. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we need help. I'm ask the worship team to come on up. Lord Jesus, we need help. We, uh, we don't like risk. We are creatures of comfort. We are creatures of habit. We are creatures of security. But Lord Jesus, life will not make sense if we just follow advice. We need you, Jesus. We need to hear it loud and clear that you need to yell it, maybe just whisper it into our ears, follow me, it's me. Me, me, me. It's not advice. It's not your comforts. It's me. Follow me. Lord, help us not put the path before the person. Help us to trust you, Jesus. Help us to relax and, and release our ways and our control and trust you where you might want to take us. And where you want to, might take this church, Lord. Wellspring, this church is yours. It isn't ours. Take us where you, you want to take us, Jesus. And help us to trust you. And we pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.